0: 10-year-old girl entered her home full of rest and peace after a day of hanging out in the cemetery with friends. She was somewhat surprised to see the doctor's wife, Mrs. Starr, visiting with her mother. You see, ma'am, Mrs. Starr said as she placed her arm around the little girl's shoulders. My own girls have grown and gone away, teaching. I could really use a little girl to help around the house and keep me from being lonesome. I could adopt her and treat her like my own. Horror flew through the girl's body as she studied her mother's face. She knew her parents were not doing well financially. She knew her parents owed money to the doctor and Mrs. Starr. But parents didn't just give away their children, did they? The year was 1877, and yes, sometimes they absolutely did. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast that is normally about local Michigan history, but today's episode centers around my favorite childhood author. And actually, this episode centers around this woman's parents, Charles and Carolyn. I'm not talking about the parents from the Little House books. Those people I would consider historical fiction, characters written in the most positive light. I'm definitely not talking about Michael Landon and Karen Grassley. Uh, no. But the real Charles and Carolyn, who really were faced with giving up their second-born daughter, Laura Elizabeth. Because honestly, they couldn't afford her. Who were these two humans, and what led them to this moment? Were they the type of people to cut their losses and give up a child they struggled to care for? There was definitely a dark side to the little house and we are going to explore the early lives of these pioneers. I hope you enjoy this backstory. Are you ready? Let's go. Our story opens with Lansford Whiting Ingalls, who was born in 1812. He was born in Quebec, Canada. Not sure when Lansford crossed that international line and into these, or rather those, United States. It's changed a little bit since then. But he did meet and marry Laura Colby, the OG Laura Ingalls. She was born in 1810, and I just have to share her mother's maiden name with you. Blood. Eunice Blood. So if that's your last name, you might be related to this amazing family. Lansford and Laura got married in Holland, New York, which is outside of Buffalo. She gave birth to Peter, then a baby who died, and then on January tenth, 1836, in Cuba, New York, she delivered a son who would have a wandering spirit, a hard-working life, and unknowingly become the father of one of the greatest children's authors of all time, Charles Philip Ingalls. In addition to his older brother Peter, to whom he was close, there were several other younger brothers and sisters, totaling nine kids. Ten if you include the poor baby that lived only one week. In 1842, the Ingalls family made a pretty big move from New York to Kane County, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. That was a quick nine-year stay, and by 1851, the Ingalls family was on the move again, this time to Wisconsin, near Concord. The family settled near the banks of the... Okay, hold on. I love native names... (laughs) this might just give me a second here. All right. Okonomowak. 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 Nope. Okonomowak River. I don't. Okay. Charles and his brothers helped their father clear land, build the home, farm, and hunt. Charles was about 15 at this time. And despite all of the hard work, which was constantly being done, Charles somehow found the time to develop a hobby. Playing the fiddle. It is said that he acquired the fiddle around 1850. He also had time to help out and hang out with a nearby family that lived just to the south of the Ingalls farm, the Quiner Holbrooks. Now I need to tell you about this family, the Quiners, Henry and Charlotte Quiner. Also, that is how the last name is pronounced. I checked with john bass president director and historian of the ingalls wilder lane historic alliance located in shreveport louisiana i also checked with a descendant of the quiners who has the last name quiner he told me it rhymes with weiner i have a need to be accurate sometimes back to this crazy story they were from out east new haven connecticut they had had a little girl named martha and then decided to head west while living in cincinnati ohio joseph carpenter quiner was born and then henry odin quiner sometime between 1835 and 1837 little martha died so they named their next daughter born in 1837 in indiana martha In 1839, the family had finally reached Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is now a suburb of Milwaukee, and they had another baby. Actually, they had three more babies, two girls and a boy. Henry had interesting jobs to support his family. It's somewhat difficult to know everything he did because the censuses back then were bare bones. They didn't even list the names of people in the homes, or their ages, or their occupations. Just the head of the home. In order to know about Henry, we have to go with what has been handed down from letters and family stories and newspaper articles. We know that Henry may have been a farmer, but he was definitely a tradesman. This makes me think he was a hunter and a trapper as well, but he definitely traded. And guess who he traded with? The local native tribes. The local indigenous people were often at the Quiner home. The area was very much a native land at the time. Henry and Charlotte had a daughter born there in 1839, and she was, quote, one of the first Caucasian babies born in the area, according to Sarah Uthoff of the Little House on the Prairie website. Henry Quiner went to great lengths to provide, and he unfortunately made a decision that would end up killing him and almost killing his family as well. Henry had a brother-in-law named Alexander McGregor. Alexander was married to Henry's sister, Margaret. The McGregors and the Quiners lived near each other around Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And in case you didn't know, Milwaukee is on Lake Michigan shores. The McGregors had a son who had died immediately after birth, but Margaret was pregnant again. Still, this did not stop Captain McGregor from taking a job shipping lumber through the Straits of Mackinac. In November. For whatever the reason, to trade, to work as part of the crew? I'm not sure. But Henry Quiner went along, too. Shh. Do you hear it? Oh, wait. That was about Lake Superior. Also... I wrote this paragraph yesterday afternoon, which was May 1st. And by the time I went to bed yesterday evening, I had found out that Gordon Lightfoot, who had written and sang, sung, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, had passed away. So there's that. Anyhow, there are several accounts of what happened next to Henry Quiner and Alexander McGregor. But let's start with Martha's letter. Martha was the eldest daughter of Henry Quiner. Remember her? She was the one named after her dead sister. In this letter, preserved by the Wisconsin Historical Society, Martha wrote that Henry was accompanying his brother-in-law, McGregor, on the schooner named Ocean. Oh, the irony. The year was 1845, although some have it as 1844, and I spent too much of my time proving that it was 1845. Now, a schooner is a sailing ship, and I looked this up on Wikipedia. It has two or more masts, typically with the foremast smaller than the mainmast and having gaff rigged lower masts, whatever that means. Got that picture in your head? Okay, good. Let's move on. The ocean set sail on Lake Michigan heading for the Straits of Mackinac. It was full of lumber. And then, it disappeared. When it reappeared, no one was on board. Here is an article from the Milwaukee Gazette, around November 22, 1845. In the loss of the Schooner Ocean, four of our citizens have passed from time to eternity. Just before the ocean sailed from this port, Captain McGregor came to our office subscribed for our paper, and with the buoyancy of health and spirits, good-humoredly contrasted the varied and exciting life of a sailor with the monotony of a printer's existence. So, (laughs) this kind of made me laugh, but... So, Captain McGregor came into the newspaper office, bought a paper, and then made fun of them because their lives were so boring, and he was about to set sail on the waters of Lake Michigan and then die, and they wanted to mention this in their article while they still sat there in their boring jobs of writing stories about him. Anyway, I guess they got the last laugh. Doesn't sound like they were laughing. Okay. His hearty laugh and jovial voice still ring in our ears. He has left a wife and one child. The mate, Mr. Russell, also left a wife and child. The second mate, Quiner, has left a wife and five or six children to mourn his loss. We hope the tears of widows and orphans will incite government to some action in favor of our lake harbors. They didn't. Next article. From the Detroit Advertiser, November 10, 1845. The Schooner Ocean of Mackinac was visited this morning by the steamer champion about six miles north of St. Joseph and two miles from shore. She is a complete wreck, having lost her boat and davits, carried away her mainmast, her sails torn into rags, hatches off, and lumber in the hold. There were no persons on board, and it is supposed that the crew were all lost. She had the appearance of having been capsized and righted again. Holy my my. Lake Michigan ripped this boat up, tossed it upside down, and then because of the lumber, apparently, is why it righted itself up again. What isn't really clear is if the ocean actually made it to the Straits of Mackinac and was wiped out by storms there, or if it was wiped out on a storm or by a storm in Lake Michigan. What we do know is that they left Milwaukee and then the boat was found off the shores of St. Joe, Michigan. Sorry. Now, I have to ask you this question. Did you know that Lake Michigan has its own Triangle of Terror? Kind of like the Bermuda Triangle? I don't have the time to get into the specifics, but the triangle goes from Ludington, Michigan, Okay, wait, stop. Now, if you're not from Michigan, we're going to pretend that you are. And this is what gangsters do. We get our hand out and you just have to make sure usually it's palm up and then your thumb is facing to the right and right at the top of the pinky would be Ludington-ish. So Ludington is the beginning of the triangle in this case. So then you would draw an imaginary line, pretend there's like land over there, that's Wisconsin, and then you would come back down to the bottom of your hand, like the wrist bone, which I think would be St. Joseph, and then shoot back up to Ludington, and that is kind of the triangle. And a lot of weird stuff has happened in this triangle. Some say it's not actually a triangle, but just all of Lake Michigan. And if you have the time... Google search this triangle. Wikipedia calls it the Lake Michigan Triangle. (laughs) Very easy. If you have even more time, listen to episode 82 of the Violent Ends podcast because Jen Carpenter does an amazing job talking about it. There's even been a Northwest flight that went down in that triangle in 1950 If you have even more time, check out episode 101 of Violent Ends because things get even more crazy with this triangle. Aliens. These men aboard ocean in 1845 lost their lives. And it's interesting that they were on a boat called ocean traveling on a lake that really is like an ocean when the gales of November Come slashing. People from around these great lakes know the power in these waters, but people from everywhere seem to forget this. Gordon Lightfoot had said that Lake Huron rolls and Superior sings, but I'm not really sure what he meant when he sang, Old Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. The islands and bays are for sportsmen because If one is not careful with this Great Lake, any of the Great Lakes, they will absolutely kill you. The power in these waters is beautiful and can be deadly. Quick story about Lake Michigan. Last summer, July 2022, my family and I were on a week-long vacation in Grand Haven. One afternoon, we ventured down to Tunnel Park in Holland, which is about 10 or 15 minutes down the coast, Tunnel Park is not a state-controlled park, so no flag system telling you if the water is safe or not. We arrived at 1 p.m. The waves were calm, and I set up near the water. By 4, I had to move my chair back because the tide was in. And as I moved some of our belongings back a bit, I went back to get a plastic shovel that I had just dropped, like 20 seconds before that. And the flippin' lake stole it. It was just gone. By 4.30, a definite change had taken place in the water. The waves had increased, but it was the current that alarmed me. It was taking my children further and further down the beach. But please note, I do not faffo with the Great Lakes. My children must be in a life vest if they are stepping in over their knees. Now, on this particular day, my kids were having a blast. They would run a little bit past me, get in the water, and then the current would just... Like, give them a ride down south on the shorelines or on the coast. But within 15 minutes, everything changed. I noticed the waves went from sort of choppy to crashing. And that current had become so strong, my kids had to make an effort to get away from it. Again, the beach we were at did not have a flag system, but state park conditions and updates can be accessed on Facebook, so I accessed. The flags in Grand Haven to the north of me and Holland just to the south of me had changed to red. My kids got out of the water. Later that night, I found out what was going on in the water that day. Northwest winds had caused riptides, and there was a significant increase in water rescues. Four people had drowned in Lake Michigan that same day. The drownings happened to the north of us and to the south of us. Lake Michigan is gorgeous, and Lake Michigan can be deadly. Henry Quiner left behind his wife, Charlotte, and their six children, Joseph, Henry, Martha, Eliza, and Thomas. If you were counting, I actually left out one name. That name would become the single most important name to Charles Philip Ingalls. That name would be the glue that literally held the Ingalls family together, That name was Carolyn Lake Quiner. Yes, her name was pronounced Carolyn and not Caroline. (sighs) Although I'm having a really hard time calling her Carolyn and not Caroline because I always thought it was Caroline because that's how it looks like it should be pronounced. But I'm going to try to make the adjustment. Although I was told by the Laura Ingalls Wilder experts, it's okay to pronounce it either way. I'm just trying to be more accurate. And yes, her middle name was Lake. Her father was killed on a schooner named Ocean on Lake Michigan, and his daughter's middle name was Lake. It was a family name because she was named after her aunt. Carolyn had been born in Brookfield, Wisconsin, one of the first Caucasian babies born in the area. And now her father was dead, and she was just five years old. Charlotte Quiner, her mother, was now a widow. Her husband gone, she had an infant and five older children to care for. This could have been a death sentence for the family. No income, no food, no life. There are accounts of the family almost starving to death at times, but this is just amazing to me. The ones who came to help the Quiners, along with the neighbors and townspeople, were the native people Henry Quiner had traded with. These same people brought food to Charlotte and her children. They were saved by the help extended to them. But Charlotte decided to leave the area. In 1848, she moved her family to government land outside of Concord, Wisconsin, and accidentally found love, or maybe just marriage, or maybe both, with the farmer next door, Frederick Holbrook. Together, Frederick and Charlotte raised her children and had one of their own, Aunt Lottie. Interesting to note that in the 1850 census, Frederick Holbrook gave the Quiner children his last name. I don't think he actually adopted them, though. But Carolyn must have loved her stepfather, because she gave her son the middle name Frederick, and he was known as Baby Freddie. The family was no longer in poverty and had found stability. Carolyn attended school and was even a teacher in her late teens. But hold up. Let's not forget those other neighbors from Cuba, New York. The Ingalls family. There was a lot of interest in socialization between the Quiners and the Ingallses. See, one of Peter and Charles Ingalls' little sisters, Polly, was being courted by the older brother of Carolyn, Henry Quiner. Then came Peter Ingalls and Eliza Quiner, and last but oh so much not least, Charles and Carolyn were married February of 1860. They were living with Laura and Lansford and all the remaining siblings during the 1860 census. There was a lot of people in that house. Just over a year after their marriage, 1861, the nation changed again, which threatened the new marriage, Civil War. Charles did not fight in the Civil War, which began in April 1861. Charles was 25 years old, perfect fighting age, but I don't have any clue why he didn't serve. There's probably debate about it somewhere. He was newly married, no children, I don't know. I do get the feeling his dad wasn't too keen on the war, but that might have had to do with the story from Little House in the Big Woods, where like the uncles show up and... Grandpa Ingalls is upset? I don't know. Anyway, there may have been a different reason to avoid the war as well. Carolyn's eldest brother, Joseph Carpenter Quiner, did serve with the Wisconsin Regiment. I took the following from PioneerGirl.com. Joseph was wounded in the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing and died in a field hospital on April 28th. One can imagine that the death of Joseph Quiner might have dampened enthusiasm for the war effort among the Quiner and Ingalls families. There were also three drafts in Wisconsin, but still, none of the Quiner or Ingalls guys were drafted. It's sort of crazy to me to think that if Charles had been drafted and then met the same fate as his brother-in-law, there would be no Laura Ingalls Two of Charles's brothers actually did volunteer for the Union Army, and maybe they did that to somehow spare the brothers who were married and starting families. That was just maybe a theory I had. Charles and Carolyn ended up in Pippin, Wisconsin, where they grew, of all things, hops. It goes in beer. I don't like it. They were doing this during the Civil War. So Charles wasn't fighting the war. He was... Making hops for beer. According to the Facebook page Old World Wisconsin, early in their marriage, the Ingleses contributed to Wisconsin's growing beer brewing industry by growing hops on their Jefferson County farm. In a letter dated October 6, 1861, now preserved by the Wisconsin Historical Society in Concord, Carolyn Ingles wrote to her brother and sister We have got our hops picked and pressed. It took three weeks with 20 pickers to pick them. We have sold $250 worth and have about as many more to sell as we have sold. But we do not expect to get as much for the remainder as the price is reduced. The Ingalls were not alone. Many Wisconsin farmers were caught up in the hops growing boom of the 1860s, with statewide production increasing from 135,000 pounds in 1860 to like 4.7 million pounds in 1870. That's a lot. However, the boom would eventually bust due to overproduction, crop disease, and competition from outside Wisconsin. The Ingalls' connection to the growing of hops was very brief. The couple moved from their Jefferson County farm to western Wisconsin not long after Carolyn wrote the letter. Charles and Carolyn moved to Pepin, Wisconsin, where they bought land alongside Peter and Eliza, Henry and Polly, and Lansford and Laura, one big, giant, happy family. Five years into their marriage, they had their first child, Mary Amelia, and on February seventh, 1867, Laura Elizabeth Ingalls was born into this world. Despite what was written in the books, Carrie was not born in the big woods. She was actually born on the Kansas prairies. See, as you probably know if you're a fan, Charles had a wandering spirit. He was dissatisfied with the amount of settlers who had arrived in Pepin. The game was decreasing, farmlands were shrinking, Charles wanted to be free. And the family didn't even go from Wisconsin to Kansas, which is what I always thought. They actually spent some time in Missouri, but then moved on to the open, wide, illegal prairies. Oh, geez. This family. Carolyn, to me, was a bit of a badass to travel this far with two tiny girls, a dog and her husband without the support of other families. They ventured into the great wide open and accidentally decided to build on Osage land. Wait, I don't know how accidental it really was. Charles knew where he was going. He wasn't just three miles over the line into the Osage Diminished Reserve. He was ten miles over. And Charles was banking on the government pushing the Osage and Cherokee out of this land, opening it up to the tall white guys. That's a Violent Ends reference. He wanted to be the first to pick his piece of the land, his piece of the pie. Charles Ingalls was a squatter. Look, I'm not trying to be harsh. I love Charles Ingalls. But the Ingalls family knew where they were because Carolyn delivered a baby girl out there, named the baby after herself too, more badass, and wrote in the family Bible, Rutland Township, Montgomery County, Kansas. Also, she would just be so disappointed in me for my language. Just really proud of some of these pioneer women. Probably all of them. And just like all things with this family, it didn't work out. There's discussion of what exactly happened. Laura wrote in Little House in the Prairie that soldiers kicked them out. She would have been too young to remember most of this, and when she wrote the books, Pa, Ma, and Mary were gone. Charles did receive a letter from the man who had purchased their home back in Pepin, Wisconsin, stating that he could no longer pay for it and wanted them to take the land back. By May 1871, the Ingleses were back in Pepin County, Wisconsin. Now, this is also driving me nuts. I'm not sure if it's Peepin or Pepin, so please forgive me. They stayed in Wisconsin for a bit, tried to make a go of things in Walnut Grove, Minnesota, and just about the time baby Freddie was born, Charles and Carolyn found themselves upside down in their finances. The grasshoppers were a real thing that killed crops throughout the Midwest, but Freddie was sick. Charles took an opportunity to make some money. He could be the keeper of an inn located in Burr Oak, Iowa. Ma and the girls would work to provide food for the customers and they could all live in a room, share one room, for the time being. Ugh. These were some of the darkest days of Laura's childhood. Nothing went as planned, including baby Freddy stretching out his little body and dying while they visited with Uncle Peter and Aunt Eliza and the cousins on the way to Iowa. Painfully, they had to bury him and leave him behind. The hotel situation was a hot mess, too. Pot eventually got them into a rental home, and in 1877, a baby girl was born to the family. The last child, whose name symbolized hope despite a crumbling situation. Grace Pearl. She was healthy, but being the last born, Charles and Carolyn must have realized there may not be a boy to help with the work It took just to survive in those times. Hard stop. I am not in any way being sexist here. I'm using the mindset from back then, and back then, both the men and women had back-breaking work. But what this meant for the Ingalls family was that they would have to hire a laborer, or the girls would have to help out along with doing the chores in the home. And right about this time, the Ingalls family needed all the help they could get. According to a manuscript Laura wrote, Pa was cheated out of his share of the Hotel profits." Scarlet fever descended on Mary and Laura. Lingering effects from this illness would factor into Mary's blindness after they left for Oak. And actually, I just said that because it was in Pioneer Girl, but the real cause of Mary's blindness was probably viral meningoencephalitis. You can look that up if you'd like, but it's where there's inflammation of the brain, the membrane that covers the brain. In severe cases, it can cause inflammation of the optic nerve that can result in a slow, progressive loss of sight. But I guess it was just easier to say scarlet fever and blame it on that. The Ingalls family just couldn't seem to catch a break. The doctor's bills, lack of steady income. And now Carolyn Ingalls was being asked if her middle child, Laura Elizabeth Ingalls, would be better off with a different family who had more money and could provide for her little girl. Laura studied her mother's face. How would she respond? I'm going to tell you in Laura's own words. But Ma smiled at me and said she couldn't possibly spare me so Mrs. Starr went away looking very disappointed. Also, Dr. Starr, husband of Mrs. Starr, died four years later, and Mrs. Starr ended up having to live in Colorado with one of her daughters. For more reasons than one, I'm so glad that Carolyn made the choice she did. Now, I don't know the conversation that was had when Charles came home that night, but let me tell you what happened soon afterward. Actually, I'm going to let Laura tell you again. Sometime in the night, we children were waked to find the wagon with a cover on, standing by the door, and everything but our bed and the stove loaded in. While we were dressing with Ma's help, for we were awfully sleepy, Pa put our bed in the wagon and hitched the horses on. Then we climbed in and drove away in the darkness. Before daylight, we were in another county. The footnote here offers something more about Pa, Just so you don't think him a complete scoundrel. Charles Ingalls' decision to skip town seemed justified. He needed a fresh start to support his family and keep them under one roof. There is another note that Pod did send money back to Baroque as he made the money in Walnut Grove. Well, except for one dude he did not send money back to, and that was Mr. Bisbee. Now, there's a whole thing about Mr. Bisbee, but... I'm just going to tell you this little part. The family had been renting a house from Mr. Bisbee. Charles asked if he could send him the money owed at a later date, but Bisbee was all like, nope. Bisbee even threatened to sell their horses if they tried to leave town, and the law was on his side. In Laura's words, Pa was very angry. He said he had always paid all he owed, and he would pay everyone else, but he'd be darned if he'd ever pay that rich old skinflint Bisbee a cent. So, the Ingalls family packed up their group, got a grip, came a quit, grabbed their proton packs off their back, and they split. Sorry. I was writing that, and it just started to sound like the song On Our Own by Bobby Brown, and I'm letting my 1980s show just a little bit. Which is interesting because like we're talking about things that happened in eighteen eighties and I just inserted an eighteen no, a nineteen nineties song in there. I think I'm a bit off topic. Okay, let's bring it back in. The Ingalls left town under the cover of darkness. You know something else though? If still Hastings had been their doctor, it would have been Fafo on Charles Ingalls. And if you don't know what I'm talking about Go back to episode one of this podcast and find out what I'm talking about. The Ingalls family would go on to have more ups and downs and all over the places. The historical fiction from the books and the historical facts of real life have captured my attention since I was a little girl. I adore these stories, and I'm still learning more. I didn't even know the Ingalls family grew hops. But I just don't have time to tell you everything there is to tell you. My favorite parts. The backstory. If I did have time, I'd tell you about the possible encounter with the Benders. Do you know about them? <laughs> they were a creepy, murderous bunch. Ah, uh, no, 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 perhaps a different day. And I want to tell you more about the real stories behind the banks of Plum Creek, the long winter, and even Laura's life with El Manzo. Yeah, that's how it's pronounced. Oh, I really want to tell you the story of the tornado. That was always one of my favorite chapters from these happy golden years. But I'll leave you with this. Charles and Carolyn Ingalls were real people with real traumas going through some of the toughest life events one could imagine. But even with all of that, even with everything against them, they valued their family. That day in Oak, Iowa, when Mrs. Starr asked to have Laura. Can you even imagine that? There was no way Charles and Carolyn Ingalls would willingly separate themselves from one of their children. They risked going to jail to keep their family together. After all Carolyn had been through as a child, after all they had been through with losing Freddie, Laura was not just another mouth to feed, but a loved child who would make her parents legends long after they were gone. Now it's time for the Oops, I'm Stupid Again part of this podcast, where I lighten things up and tell you about a time I did something real dumb, and you can relate to it. Right? I try to stay with the theme of our topic today, but I couldn't really come up with anything. I've actually been to Walnut Grove, and DeSmet, South Dakota, and even Mansfield, Missouri. These are all places that Laura lived. But... I don't want to tell you those stories right now. Something actually did happen to me in Walnut Grove, and it used to be really funny, but I've since found out, mm, not so much. It involves something called sleep paralysis, and according to WebMD, which is where I get all of my medical information, it is a feeling of being conscious, but unable to move, It occurs when a person passes between stages of wakefulness and sleep. Apparently, it only happens once or twice to people in their lifetimes. It's happened to me twice. But again, more about that at a later date. I wanted to mention it, though, because if you've ever experienced sleep paralysis, would you mind sharing your story with me? It can be anonymous. But back to the oops, I'm stupid again part. (laughs) Um, I did think of something from my past while I was doing this episode, and it has to do with the name Charles. If you know me, you know that I like to give people from my stories and my episodes a nickname. I didn't feel like I could do that to Charles and Carolyn. Seemed like I would get in trouble. It seemed too disrespectful. (laughs) So I called him by the name, everyone called him Charles, but I know many other Charleses, including my own father, who goes by the name Chuck, Chaz, Charlie, not so much Charlie. Not that there is something stupid on anyone's part, but while writing this episode, I was reminded of the time my dad played the name game for me. You know, the song, The Name Game. I was pretty young, like seven or something. Do you know where the story is going? I was so excited about this song, the name game, and I immediately wanted to try all the names I knew. I remember turning to my dad, but before I could start with chuck, chuck, bobuck, banana fanafo, he stopped me and said, "Let's use the name daddy instead." Knowing my dad though, he was probably trying to really contain his laughter. He's always been a bit naughty. So, that's all I have for you today. I hope you liked this one don't be afraid to let me know. I can see that I'm getting a significant amount of downloads, which is so awesome. I'm not sure what it means, but I just hope people are really enjoying the stories as well. My main sources today were Laura Ingalls Wilder's manuscript called Pioneer Girl. Did you know the first book she wrote was actually for adults? It was rejected, so she and her daughter Rose broke the story down into parts and geared it toward kids. No one ever thought Pioneer Girl would be released, but in 2014, it finally was, and it's amazing. If you want to know more about the real story behind the Little House books, check out Pioneer Girl. Other sources for today are John Bass, Nancy Cleveland, PioneerGirl.com, Susan Othloff, sorry Susan. LittleHouseOnThePrairie.com, Ancestry, Genealogy Bank, and myself. For a complete list of sources, please visit my episode notes on BuzzSprout.com and join me in about two ish weeks for the next episode of Where They Stood. <laughs>